The uh, text for the sermon this morning comes from Matthew 5, 43 through 48. And also we're going to be at the end looking at Deuteronomy chapter 10 verses. Uh, it says on the bulletin 19 through 21. But what the heck? Let's do 17 through 21. So that's uh, in your pew Bibles, pages 8, 11 and 155, if you need a second to find it. And let's stand for the reading of God's word. It's a tradition we have here at Christ Community Church. Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 48. This is our Lord Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and says rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, page 155, Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner. Giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated and we'll take a moment to reflect quietly on God's word. Today's a great day for so many reasons, uh, but primarily because Sam is preaching today. And um, you've heard me tell the story of Sam being in my cabin when I was the Young Life Area Director, and he, he has come to Windy Gap as a student from Hoggart High School. And, of course, at that point, he wouldn't have thought I was going to be a pastor, and I wouldn't have thought he was going to be a preacher. So, uh, But it's just amazing as you watch God work. He really just does transformative work. And you may be in a place that feels like I'm never going to arrive somewhere. And I just want you to know, just wait on the Lord. You, you be faithful. You keep taking steps. And you, 
you trust the Lord, and uh, he'll do great things. So I'm grateful that Sam's going to preach and teach us God's word today, and I want you to join with me as I pray for him. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that you send people and that they tell us about your word. You've gifted uh, different men and women to help us see something about your word, to be teachers. And we're thankful for Sam today, especially for his uh, willingness to dive into your word, to see things that we can't see and help us see and savor you in a different way. Pray for his courage, pray for his proclamation, pray for the Holy Spirit in him, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. That was not the sermon. That was just an introduction to the sermon. Um, okay, so Paul introduced me. My name's Sam Kennedy. Uh, I'm at church. You may have seen me lead the music before. I'm uh, the director of the music and also uh, the college ministry and also community groups. And so it's appropriate uh, this morning that we'd be taking a look at this passage from Matthew chapter 5 primarily because this is kind of our Lord's uh, blueprint for what Christian community looks like. Uh, especially and specifically as it relates to the way uh, Christian community, the way our community, the way the Lord's community looks and relates at uh, people with whom they differ, people on the outside, people who are just difficult, shall we say. Uh, So this is the season in the church where we've just gotten done uh, celebrating Advent, where we celebrate Christ coming as the King. And we sing in in that hymn we sang earlier this week, Joy to the World, Let Earth Receive Her King. And the king came as a little baby, and little babies are so sweet. And then the king grows up. And he's not a baby anymore. Now he's a man. And the king started saying some pretty difficult things. And so this is the king. The Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus the king giving us the blueprint for his kingdom. Uh, kingdoms, most people say, have uh, three parts. They have a pattern, um, they have a power, and they have a product. So there's a pattern, there's kind of a system, there's a blueprint, there's certain kingdom values that every kingdom or culture or society has. And then there's a power with which the king or the, the people in charge kind of execute uh, those plans, those patterns. And then there's a product, cultures, culture, different types of things, different types of soils grow different types of plants. And so uh, this kingdom that Jesus is talking about has a pattern. And primarily what we're going to be talking about is the pattern uh, for his kingdom uh, today. Uh, Now, this text, as I said, is part of the Sermon on the Mount, which is really the greatest sermon ever delivered. So I figured for my first sermon, I'll talk about the best sermon ever. And if all I do is just read it, that'll be good enough because it's so great. And so many, so much ink has been spilled about this one sermon of Jesus's that I'm really only going to be able to scratch the surface because it's so wonderful. And it really, it, it deserves to be read and studied and will reward further study on your own. So I totally encourage you to dig deeper into it afterwards and just kind of situate us. Jesus has been teaching for a while and he's gotten uh, a little bit of notoriety. People are interested in him. He's healed some people and crowds are starting to follow Jesus. And so Jesus takes these crowds of people and he brings them out to the hill country. 
and he brings them to the side of a mountain. It's probably not, he's probably not way up on a mountain just kind of talking down at them because it says he's seated and that really doesn't work. So he's, they're there and he's kind of at the foothills is probably the best way to look at it. On the outskirts of the city and he's got this crowd and he gives them this sermon. And so the crowd is kind of a mixed group. You've got all kinds of different people there. You've got people who are maybe have just heard about Jesus' teaching, uh, heard about Jesus' miracles, heard that he's uh, a teacher with authority, heard that he's really compelling, heard that he's um, uh, that he said and did things that no one else has ever said or done. And so they're out here really just curious to check Jesus out. And um, then you've got other people who are Jesus' disciples that he's picked. The 12 people that he's picked to kind of say, you're going to be my team. You're going to be my inside people. And and he's brought them too. And they're here. So you've got the insiders and you've got the kind of the fringe people who are just on the outside looking in. And then you've got people uh, like the scribes and the Pharisees. And undoubtedly, they were kind of mixed in here too. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the best way to think about them, uh, because we don't really have people called scribes and Pharisees today. But what we do have is we have the religiously serious. Okay. Every culture has religiously serious people. And in fact, every religion has religiously serious people. So that's kind of what the scribes and the Pharisees were. They were the serious, they were the people who, when you looked at them, you thought they, whatever their, whoever their God is, they take it really seriously. It's really important to them. Okay. So that's who the scribes and the Pharisees were. So you had a whole spectrum of people. But they're all here to hear Jesus. And so you've got to wonder, what's, what's going on in people's hearts? What's causing them to go out there to see him? Now, I think maybe for a lot of the people, they were just sick of uh, what passed for religious teaching in their day. Because really, the scribes and the Pharisees, that was kind of it. I mean, you had the Pharisees who were just the uber conservative, and then you had the Sadducees, which as Paul talked about earlier this week, they were just kind of the whatever, whatever you want, man, (laughs) you know, anything goes. So they were, they were the super open and then you had the super closed and people were going, "Ah, certainly there's gotta be something else. And then here comes Jesus and it's like a fresh breeze just blowing through the culture. And so they're there to see him. And undoubtedly, you've got some scribes and Pharisees that are there. And they just want to be uh, they just want to be kind of confirmed in their own presuppositions. They just want to go. They're really into being right. They've worked really hard at figuring everything out. And they just want Jesus to remind them that they've got it all together, which, as we see, he will totally not do. And I think even among the scribes and Pharisees, there must have been a couple people there who were just sick, who thought, you know, Surely there's got to be something more. And this Jesus, he he teaches with with power. And so they're there um, to see Jesus. And this is, uh, so because there was this range of people there in the crowd, that means that no matter where you are here today, if you're religiously serious or if you're kind of a novice and you're just checking in and checking things out, there's something for everyone here. And everything that Jesus has to say applies to someone uh, here. And this is a really difficult text, by the way. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just one of the greatest sermons ever uh, preached. It's also one of the most difficult sermons ever delivered. And after Jesus preached this, some people, he really polarized a lot of people. And so what I'm not going to try to do is just shave off the rough edges uh, and to try to make this palatable for us. But what I am going to do is we're, we're going to try to wrestle with this together, see what God's word says, um, 
and then ask God to speak to us through it. So let me just pray. Father, I pray you would open our hearts to receive your word. We pray to you in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that you give to us, that you would, by your spirit, that you would lead us in the truth. Okay, so here in the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount begins with Jesus giving the Beatitudes, which are the, uh, if you've ever heard the Sermon on the Mount before, it's the blessed are these. So the blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and accuse you of all sorts of things because of me. So those are the blessed are those. And then Jesus follows up the Beatitudes, the blessed are you's, with uh, seven commands. And in these section of seven commands, this is basically where he corrects some of the common misinterpretations of the Mosaic law. Uh, you know, God's law had been around and people had been teaching about it. And in the process of it being taught and teach, little bits and pieces had been shaved off and little bits and pieces had been added to it. And so this is Jesus uh, giving commands and basically clarifying what God's word actually says. And he, uh, he begins each command with a sentence that sounds something like, you have heard it said, you have heard teachers say, hey, you know, there's people around here that are saying this, but I say, and then he gives his command. Uh, now, what Jesus is doing, now, even though he's speaking to all kinds of different people, when he's given these commands, he's basically calling out the religious people. So we got to understand that. And so if you're not a religious person, this is really exciting for you, because what, what else is more fun than to hear someone be told how wrong they are if you disagree with them? But for, if you are a religious person, which I think for our church, which, I mean, we take theology seriously, we take doctrine seriously, uh, in the scope of our culture, most of us here, if you're in this room, you're probably a religiously serious person. So Jesus is talking to you today. And he's saying, hey, there's a way that people think about how to relate to God. There's this attitude about what God desires from people. There's this attitude that's kind of in the air about what true religion looks like. And I'm going to tell you, there's a way that seems right to man and it leads to death. So watch out for the yeast of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's what he's going to say. Um, so when Jesus says, but I say to you, he's, you've heard it said, but I say to you, this means he was in effect. He was issuing a new commandment because after all, Jesus is God and he doesn't say anything except what the father has given him to say. And he knows the heart of the father perfectly. So what he's doing is he's perfectly interpreting God's original intent and explaining it and applying it to the audience. And so this section here in uh, verses 43 through 48, that's Jesus, his little sermon on Leviticus 19, 18. And Leviticus 19.18 is part of God's law where God says to his people, the Israelites, his special community, uh, that he has kind of called out for his own purposes to be a special people for him. He said, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what God says. And so this is Jesus explaining what that verse means. So there's a sermon about a sermon. And he doesn't give this sermon as advice. He's not like the scribes and Pharisees. This isn't just his opinion. This is Jesus' command. He knows what this means. Um, so he's restating and explaining the command to love your neighbor. And what, what exactly does it mean to love your neighbor 
as yourself. And so we're going to ask three questions of Jesus' command. First, who should we love? Second, why should we love them? And three, how can we possibly love these people? So first, who should we love? That's the question. Now, um, the Jewish teachers had a bunch of different ideas about the identity of their neighbor because everyone agreed. I mean, it says in Leviticus 19, you're supposed to love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. But the question is, who's my neighbor? I mean, that, that's what the, um, what the Pharisee asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells him the story of the good Samaritan. But no matter what people thought about the identity of neighbor at the time when Jesus was preaching this, they all reserved the term for people who were in Israel. People who looked like them, people who uh, were ethnically the same as them, people who worshipped the same as them. Um, and you can imagine this, right? Because if you, if you spend all your time with people that look like you, with people that believe like you, with people that have the same culture that you do, with people who, do, who don't rub you the wrong way at all, you start to think, well, these are my neighbors. These are my people, right? I mean, if you were a Pharisee, if you were part of the Jewish community, you went to Jewish restaurants. If you listen to music, you listen to Jewish music. If you went to the movies, you watched Jewish movies, or at least movies that people kind of made and tried to market to Jewish people and pretend they were Jewish movies. You know, and so you spend all your time. If you go out to eat, you'd go to a Jewish restaurant. You'd go to the Jewish grocery store and you'd see all your Jewish friends. And so you could see in your little circle, it starts to seem like, well, these are my people. These are, aren't these the only people? Is all these people that I'm interacting with all the time? And so, and so it started to become that anyone who is different, a Gentile, a Samaritan, maybe a less conservative Jewish person, they just became other and different. They became the enemy. And so, listen to this is a, a, a lesson that was taught by the Pharisees around the same time. Uh, it says, it shows you just how much they'd kind of twisted God's original intent here, how kind of inward focused they had been. Uh, this is what they would say If a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out. For it is written in the law, Thou shalt not stand against the life of your neighbor. But that man is not your neighbor. So let him die. He's not your neighbor. Don't worry about him. Can you believe that? This is the culture that Jesus was speaking into. And, and so for us, I just think it, maybe when Jesus is saying love your enemy, that word enemy not, might not really be helpful for us. Because when we think of enemy, we think of like a, a combat situation uh, or, or someone who wants to do you physical harm. And so maybe it would be better to say uh, Jesus saying uh, love the outsider love the person that's different love the person who's wrong the person who you think just is just wrong you, the person that you go what is wrong with that why do they believe that why do they do that why do they live that way the person who you just really disagree with jesus is saying that's the person you're supposed to love that's the person you're supposed to pray for and if you'll notice here, Jesus is not saying that if you believe in him, if you're part of his community, that you won't have enemies. 
He's assuming you will have enemies. And in fact, in the Beatitudes, in the beginning, he says that the really special ones, the really blessed ones in his kingdoms, in his kingdom are the ones who are insulted and persecuted. The people who have enemies because of Jesus, those are the really blessed ones. So Jesus is saying, hey, if you follow me, you're going to have enemies. But the thing that's going to set you apart from everyone else is the way you look at your enemies, that you're not going to approach them as enemies. That even if they look at you and they say, man, that guy, he's my enemy. Those people at Christ Community Church, they're probably my enemy. That you'd think, how can I do good to them? How can I bless them? How can I totally confuse them by the way that I approach them and by the way I extend hospitality to them? It doesn't mean you won't have to disagree with people. It doesn't actually mean that you, you like them all the time, that you just agree with whatever they do. Um, we're supposed to love them and pray for them. Now, love here, the word love, agape, it's not just emotion. It's not just a warm, fuzzy feeling, but it's not less than emotion. It's not emotionless service. You know, like if you see someone that is uh, cold in need of a coat on the street, that you just walk through them with like gritted teeth and you throw a coat and you force them to put it on. Say, there, take that coat. I'm loving you. Look at me. But that's not love. So it's not, it's not, it, it's not emotionless love. Emotionless love is patronizing. You know, forced love. People, people know when it's forced. They know when you're faking it. Um, and love isn't the same thing as tolerance. Uh, tolerance is something that you do with someone who you really disagree with. And you're like, well, I don't have to love you, but at least I can tolerate you. Uh, because I can't stand what you're doing, but I can kind of, I can stand it a little bit. I can tolerate it for a little while. I don't want to be tolerated. I don't know about you. I want to be loved. I want to be cared for. I want to be listened to. I want to be respectfully disagreed with. I don't want to be tolerated. Um, so love is, it's not just emotion. It's more than tolerance. Love, agape, it means a sympathetic concern for the another. Uh, it means meeting the needs of your enemies, uh, Agape, this other-centered love, it's the love that God has. And it means you expend energy and effort to make what's unlovely, lovely. You look at something that's broken, and you expend your energy to make it whole. You look at something that, that's messed up, and you expend your energy and emotion to try and fix it. And because loving your enemies... What Jesus is saying here, it doesn't mean just uh, having warm feelings about them, about them all the time, but it means actively working toward their greatest good. This is why loving your enemies just doesn't mean that you just let people walk all over you, right? Uh, so let's say someone, they're your enemy. They want to burn down your house. Loving your enemy does not mean that you hand them a book of matches, all right? Because that's not working towards their greatest good. Is it good for someone to sin against you? Is it good for someone to abuse you? Is that good for their soul? For them to just pile up sin against sin against sin in their own soul? No, 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 no. That's not what's best for them. So part of loving people might mean restraining the evil that they do. Saying, hey, that's enough. I'm not going to give you a book of matches. In fact, I'm going to call the police. It might be the best thing for you if I limit the amount of bad that you can do. That might be the most loving thing I can do. Um, what he is saying here, and this is so different from what the religious leaders thought, is that love always takes the first step. 
Love always takes the initiative. The Pharisees would wait and look and go, if you show yourself to be my friend, then I'll be a friend to you. If you look like you're going to accept what I have to give, I'm going to give it to you. Otherwise, I'm saving it up. And I'm only giving my love to people who are worthy of it. And uh, because it's, let's, let's be honest, it's awkward when you love people or you extend hospitality to people who don't return it, right? I mean, I've done this uh, at the grocery store a lot. I'll think I'll see a friend, someone who I think is a friend. Uh, I've done this thinking I've seen Liz Carpenter at the grocery store. And so I look around and there's someone who's like in the tomatoes. I call it, it's my friend Liz. And I'll walk up and I'll kind of slap her on the back and say, hey, Liz. And it's totally not Liz. <laughs> Extremely embarrassing. But Jesus is saying, hey, take the risk. Extend hospitality. Welcome someone, even if you don't know if they're going to return it. Now, we are born with a gravitational pull towards people who look like us and think like us, aren't we? Our communities, I mean, it's great to be together. It's great to be with people who agree with you. It's difficult to be with people who disagree with you, who annoy you. But Jesus is saying true community, the kind of community that he died to create... It's not, it's not totally inward focused. The community is intention. True community always expresses itself in mission and concern. So real community, the fruit of real community is always an outward focus. There's an inward element. Yeah, it's great to be together. We gather together, but then for the rest of the week, we scatter, right? So there's always an inward community focus, and then there's this outward missional push. And when I say missional, I don't just mean uh, going to China or something to uh, hand out Bibles to people. I mean, I, I mean, it's a concern for the outsider. It's a concern for your neighbor that you're thinking, okay, when I leave this little huddle, I'm out and I'm on mission. And so the answer to the question, who should I love, is really anybody. I mean, if it's the worst kind of people, if they if they're in, if if they're within the scope of my concern, then that really means nobody's out of bounds. The Pharisees were trying to draw as small a circle as they could around who was their neighbor, and God says, just shatter the circle. That everyone could be a, a potential recipient of your love. So number two, why should we love them? Or put it a different way, but why should we love them? The emphasis on them, right? Because it's them, really them, the people that bug me, the people that annoy me, the people, the people that are just wrong. And uh, the short answer is because that's what God does and that's what God says, which is kind of enough. But, but if you look, Jesus is, is giving um, an example here and he's saying, God, he, he's not partial, That's what he says in Deuteronomy. And then here it says, uh, God makes his son rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. God gives his blessings really liberally to whoever needs them. And rain and sun are not small things. I mean, they're kind of common things. Uh, The Bible includes those in things that are kind of part of God's common grace love to all of humankind. But they're not small things. I mean, without sun and rain, we'd be in pretty big trouble, right? 
And so God doesn't withhold those things for, for the few and the worthy, but he gives them to everyone, even people who don't recognize him as the giver of the gift. Now for us, for our society, for the little world that you're a part of, hospitality, inclusion, the spirit of welcoming, those seem like common things, but they're not small things. Uh, Mother Teresa said this. She said, loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted, that's the most terrible poverty in the world. Being unwanted, that's a pretty big need. To give someone the gift of being wanted, to give someone the gift of being included, to welcome someone in, that might seem like a common thing, but it is not a small thing, and it's difficult to do. And in the same way God gives uh, his reign to the good and the bad equally. He's saying, welcome them in. Include them. So let's just do a check right now. Do you know anyone who needs to be included? Do you know anyone that you need to invite over for dinner? Do you know anyone that you need to just write a note to right now? It's convicting, isn't it? When you hear Jesus' words. Um, From God's perspective, no one is too far gone. That's why. That's why you should love them. Even them, because from God's perspective, they still deserve it. Uh, It says in the bulletin that you should not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. There's this concept in the Old Testament of justice, which means you give good to whoever needs it. If it's in your power to do it, it's unjust for you to withhold it. I mean, that's, that, that's powerful. Right? That's kind of the, that's the warp and woof of the fabric of God's kingdom. And that's what it's all about. And that's who he is. That's what his heart is. Uh, but seriously, though, you might be saying, but why them? Why, why do I have to go that far out? Because, because, I mean, I'm doing a pretty good job of loving the one or two people that I kind of disagree with. Uh, but Jesus is pushing you out even further because he says here, you're supposed to be different. If you're my people, if you're part of my community, you're supposed to be different. Look, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Big whoop. You love those who love you. Uh, What do you want, like a prize? (laughs) Don't even tax collectors do the same? And at this point, the religious people in the audience... I mean, it was like someone punched them in the gut, I'm sure, because they're sitting there probably next to a tax collector who had come to hear Jesus. And the whole time they're thinking what the Pharisee was praying when he came to the temple. Oh, God, I'm so glad I'm not like this guy. I'm so glad you made me a Pharisee and not a tax collector. I'm so glad I'm who I am. Look at me. I'm so great. And then Jesus says, hey, by the way. You guys who greet those who greet you, and you go, oh, yeah, that's me. I greet those who greet me. You're just like those tax collectors. And they go, what, this guy? And then the tax collector goes, yeah, I do that too, man. I don't even care about God at all. And I totally, I greet people who love me too. You're just like me. And the Pharisees are angry. They get furious. Gentiles and tax collectors were generally agreed upon as being completely outside the realm of mercy. And most Pharisees thought they were only fit for destruction. And he's saying, if you greet only your brothers, 
what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that? And this is what I love about our church. Part of our liturgy is that we have a time to greet people. I love that. I love that about our church. In uh, ancient churches, they would call this, and in more liturgical traditions, they call it the passing of the peace. And so there's this idea that you welcome people in and you bless them. I went to this church in college, and it was so fun uh, because it felt like at that church there was a competition to see... uh, how many people you could meet in that one little, uh, you know, 30 second span, you know, and and I knew that when I was, if I was there and I was part of the community, it was my job to do the same. So you would look around and go, I haven't seen that person before. I'm going to go meet him. I'm going to go say, peace be with you. I'm going to go bless them. I'm going to extend hospitality to, I'm going to ask them their name and look them in the eye and speak to them. Which, again, seems like a common thing, but is huge. To give someone a human touch, a shake of a hand, a hug, I mean, that's a big deal. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, if you reserve your best greetings, your hugs, your your attention, your time, your money, for the people that look like you and agree with you, hey, that's... That's Bush League. I mean, that's really, you're you're not doing anything special at all. Um, Jesus is saying to them, uh, when you do that, you're no better than the worst people you know. The worst people you know, the worst people you wouldn't even dream of knowing. They do that. You're supposed to be different. Why are we supposed to be different? It kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Well, the standard God has for citizens in his kingdom is much higher than his standard uh, for the rest of the world. Uh, We are to be conspicuous in our love and regard. And conspicuous, I think, it just means strange in a good way. Strange in a noticeable way. Different in a way that people go, ooh, what's that? I want to know more. People should notice how you relate to those you differ with. There should be a sweetness to our community. There should be no hint of sourness or bitterness when we speak of those with whom we disagree or who cause us grief. Why does Jesus want us to be conspicuous? Why does he want us to be noticeable? Why does he want people uh, to take notice of how we live? Why is it so important to him? It's because his heart is for the entire world. He wants people to notice him. It's not about you. He doesn't just want people to notice this church. He wants people to notice him. He wants people to know what he's about. He wants people to know his heart. Now, if you you want to see a great explanation of this, you just look at the, the book of Jonah, which is basically an entire book devoted to this idea that no one is outside of bounds when it comes to God. That... Literally anyone could turn and know him and follow him. And this is what happens. God calls Jonah to Nineveh, which is a city in Assyria, which was just an evil place. And they killed God's people. They enslaved God's people. And and God says to Jonah, go and preach to Nineveh and tell him I'm coming. Tell him I'm coming in judgment. And Jonah does not want to go. And there's a little uh, delay that involves a fish. And then he goes to Nineveh. 
and he preaches to them probably the worst sermon that's ever been recorded. Uh, maybe the second worst now that's ever been recorded. And he, uh, he preaches to them and he just says, Hey, listen, guys, God's going to burn this city down because y'all are bad. Y'all are awful. Uh, God's going to burn the city down. So get ready. And then the king of Nineveh goes, oh man, there is a God and he's come up against us and, and we're not on his side. Let's switch around. Let's repent. Let's get on his side. And everyone in the town repents and God embraces them. God doesn't judge them. God relents. And Jonah as outside of the city and he sees that God hasn't sent just raining sulfur down in this wicked city. And Jonah's angry with God. And he's just kind of having a little pity party outside the city. And he goes, God, I knew it. I knew that if I preached to them, that you would, would cause them to turn and that you'd give them a heart of repentance. And, and, and then you would, you'd relent. Otherwise, you wouldn't have sent me in the first place. God, I can't believe that you forgave those stupid Ninevites. Those people, right? And God says this. It's so wonderful. God says... Um, There are 120,000 people in that city who don't know their right hand from their left. Plus, there's animals. How could I not love that great city? How could I not take pity on them? That's the heart of God. He's saying, these people, they don't know. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. How could I not take pity on them? Now, the point of this sermon, and the point of the Sermon on the Mount, is not just to preach some kind of do better Christianity. All right. It's not just to say, okay, pull up your bootstraps. You need to do better. Right. Because that kind of do better mentality was exactly what the Pharisees preached. They thought, okay, if I do better, if I just climb the rings, rungs of the religious ladder, I'll get to be good enough. And then God will bless me. That's what every religion apart from Christianity says. It says, if you do X, Y, and Z, if you jump through the religious hoops, then God will bless you. But the point of the Sermon on the Mount is this. We do need to do better. And guess what? It's too hard. It's too big. God's standard is too great. It's too high. And and the world is is too broken. And it's not just the brokenness outside. It's in here, too. Because when you hold God's standard up, when you see what what his law really means... It's just too hard. And the people said to Jesus, they said, this seems impossible. How could you possibly do this? How can someone do this? And Jesus said, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And in fact, just to ratchet up a little bit more before we end, we're not just supposed to be good at loving our enemies. We're called to be perfect. That's what Jesus says at the end here. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And if you weren't, (laughs) if it didn't feel like the heat was turned up already, now you know. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be perfect, but we're not perfect. How do we get from point A to point B? And there's a clue in the text here. Because the tense of the verb is this future tense so really what jesus is saying is he's saying hey you my people my special community guess what here's the secret you will be perfect 
what, the, uh, what we sang in the song, that I am bound for the promised land. You're bound for, for perfection. If I grab a hold of you, you shall be perfect. Theologians would call this the perseverance of the saints, that God grabs you with his irresistible goodness and mercy and he sticks with you and he brings you all the way home. You shall be perfect. So right now, what's your responsibility? And I think what we can do is we do. We do need to to try. We do need to search our hearts and we do need to find a deeper motivation for obedience. And uh, that motivation is gratitude, is thankfulness. So number three, how can we possibly keep this command? Let's look back in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Starting in verse 14, just, just listen to this. This is Moses talking to the Israelites. It's very similar. It's another mountain. He's called them to the side of another mountain. They're about to enter a new community. And he's laying out his blueprint for the community. And this is Moses. They've wandered through the desert. And he's reminding them of what's happening. What what God has said and what what his law is. And this is what he says to God's people, to God's little community. That's supposed to be this counterculture of grace and welcoming and hospitality and inclusion in dark world. He says, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens and the earth that is and all that is in it. God has everything. He doesn't need anything. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and he chose their offspring. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise your hearts and don't be stubborn anymore. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. He's great. He's mighty and he's awesome. He's not partial. He takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. And he loves the sojourner, the wanderer, the outsider giving him food and clothing. You shall love the sojourner, the outsider, therefore, because you were sojourners. You were outsiders. You were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. How can we do this? Well, you've got to let God's law do its work on your heart. Where it brings you to the point where you realize, you know what? Those people that I thought are the worst, I'm the worst. I'm the worst of all sinners. God, I need God's mercy. God, I need you. That's the one thing the Pharisees lacked. It, it, they thought that all they needed to do was just do what was in their power to do. But this is what Augustine says. He knew, St. Augustine knew that there was nothing good in him. And he said, God, give me what you command and then command whatever you will. And Jesus is saying, if you trust in me, if you recognize that you were lost and now you've been found, if you know that you are the worst and I've included you and I've embraced you because of the life and death of Jesus. I'm going to give you the power of my spirit. That's going to work in you. And it's going to give you the power to do what I command. So remember. Remember. In Romans 1, 4 through 15. Uh, the Apostle Paul says he's a debtor to both Jews and Gentiles. 
He's in debt to every kind of person. He's a servant to every kind of person. And uh, the author, Pastor David Platt, says, uh, he he kind of paraphrased it like, like this. He says, every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. We owe it to him. We owe it to him to welcome him, to bring him in, to build bridges of friendship. God's love is so good, we have to let people in so we can give it away. So for us, a few applications. Who around you needs love? Whose name, whose face popped up into your head? Who do you disagree with? And if people know you disagree with them politically, religiously, morally, what can you do this week to bless them and surprise them and welcome them and meet their needs? Does your circle of friends, number two, your community group, the Christians in your neighborhood, whatever little Christian society you have, maybe it's just the Christians that you work with. Maybe it's just a couple believers that you know when you have an email chain together. Um, That's like the the least community I could think of. Uh, Is your community all about yourselves? Or are you on the lookout for others on the outside so you can bring them in? Is it all community and no mission? Or is it community that, that... breeds mission, that breeds a regard for the outsider. And last, do you see your own need for God's mercy? Are you aware that you just don't measure up? And if not, can you just pray for conviction so you can see that you need to be forgiven? Let me pray. Oh, Father, this is a difficult command. We really aren't good at loving our enemies. Some of of us aren't even good at talking to our enemies. And we are often no better than the worst of sinners. But you have embraced us in Christ. And you promise that you are making us like him. Thank you that you're kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful to us. And Father, give us your spirit so that we can be merciful to others. And Father, for those of us who don't know you, would you give us eyes to see your goodness and courage to receive your forgiveness in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.